I asked my wife this morning, every time I put on these suspenders, I said, do I just look stupid? And, uh, and then this morning, as people come in, like, oh, are you preaching today? Because now, now we know when I wear suspenders, I'm preaching. So it's, uh, it's kind of cool. It kind of excites me in that way. Um, yeah. Uh, so we are moving on through our series of United States, and we're in Ephesians 2. And one thing I want you to hold on to is, um, it's so cool, Blake uh, sent out a text of a, of a little quote that he saw by Charles Spurgeon in his Twitter feed, and it fits so well with what we're going to be looking at today. So I want to share that quote it's by Charles Spurgeon. He says, I have observed that churches which do not care for the outlying population speedily suffer from disunion and strife. I want to read that again because that's something I want you to hold on to as we look at Ephesians 2. It says, I have observed that churches which do not care for the outlying population speedily suffer from disunion and strife. So let's, uh, if you have your Bibles or your phones or whatever you want to open to Ephesians 2, you can read with me. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And what you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdoms of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body of human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Um, I was kind of struck by a video I saw on Facebook that's kind of gone viral. It's been shown on national news, and I'm wondering if a lot of y'all have seen it, but it's based on these two kids in, in Louisville, right, right down the road. Um, two five-year-old boys, one's black, one's white. 
And this white, uh, this white boy tells his parents, I want to get a haircut like my friend who's black so that we can prank our teacher and she won't be able to tell us apart. <laughs> They're going to get similar haircuts so the teacher can be fooled and not know who's who because they have the same haircut, even though one is white and one is black. And I watched that video in amazement because it reminded me of a time uh, when Aaron Bolden was at our house for dinner. Y'all don't know Aaron. He's black. And we had him over for dinner. And Isaiah, I think at the time, was maybe three, three and a half. That's my son. And I was just really curious. We're sitting in the dinner table. I said, Aaron, or I said, Zay, what's different between me and Aaron? I don't know. No, look, look at Aaron and look at me. What's different between us? I don't know. I said, no, I want you to really look. Like, how do we look different? <laughs> Kid you not. That's what he said. Aaron looks like a butt face. <laughs> <laughs> I might not be teaching good things to my son at home. He probably did get that from me. But uh, it was so amazing to me that the clear, obvious difference that we recognized was totally foreign to him. He didn't even recognize race until Martin Luther King Day at school when he learned about Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> That's when he first knew that there's this difference, right? Um, and that amazes me, right, that we lose that innocence. And so it begs the question, what do you see when you look at people? Whether it's race or cultural differences, physical appearances, what do you see when you look at people? Now, I think this is important when we look at Ephesians because... Blake gave us some background last week about Ephesus, this place he's writing to, that this is like a key town where prominent people are. This was, if you lived here, you were going somewhere with your life. You had it. You were going somewhere. You were important, right? And and Blake talked about this idea of of how knowledge pushes people away. And this is kind of the kind of people that that Paul's writing to, um, that they are, you know, kind of arrogant, I guess you could say. Blake shared a verse in Corinthians that said, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Now, I think this is really important because right out the gate in verse 1, right out the gate, Paul brings them down off the high horse. Right? And, and when, I, when I read this, I think of if Richard Spoonamore, who plays the drums up here, he and his wife Kayla, they have a son named Tate, who I think is only about three. And when I read this, I just get this, uh, Tate, Tate's hilarious because he's like three, but he talks like a grown man. Right, uh, our backyard faces their backyard, and you'll hear him holler for me to play. But Bracken, like he's just a grown man. I'll never forget one day, he he was over at a house playing baseball, and he picked up his bat and he pointed at me. And he said, "Let me explain something to you." <laughs> now this is how I picture Paul talking to Ephesus here. These Ephesians. Let me explain something to you. Okay, you were dead right out the gate. So come down off that high horse because you were dead. Let's be reminded of that, okay? You were dead in your sins and transgression. And even take it even further when he goes into verse 2, right? We're going to verse 2 and says, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world. Now, the Greek word peripateo is used, which peripateo literally means to walk around. So you were dead when you followed the ways of this world. You were dead in the sin. So literally he's meaning you were walking around showcasing your sin. You were walking around doing it, not just some figurative idea of like, yeah, we kind of follow the way. You were walking around doing this. And then he drives this point even further home in verse 3 when we read, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. I was blown away when I was looking at the Greek language here because the word thoughts is the Greek word dianeo. Dianeo literally means thoroughly reasoning. 
thoroughly reasoning. So let's think about this. Not only are you walking around showcasing your sin, but you are thoroughly reasoning your sin. You are reasoning the gratifying of your own desires. You are reasoning it through. And God gave me a perfect story to use just yesterday to demonstrate this. Yesterday, my wife and I, our family, we were in Lexington meeting up with her sister. And after dinner, they decided they want to go to Target. So, of course, when Isaiah hears we're going to Target, he thinks, I'm getting a toy. I explained to him that we're not getting any toys. Right? Mommy, she's got to get a couple things. We're not getting toys. Well, can we at least look around? We can look, but we're not getting anything. So we get in there, and of course, I know what's going to come, right? He's going to play, I want this, I want this. And he's looking at this big mega transformer thing, and he tells me, Daddy, I want this. I said, Daddy, we're not getting a toy. Well, if you don't let me get this, I'm not going to play with you anymore. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I'm not going to be your friend, and you're going to be so sad. And all of a sudden, it hit me. He is thoroughly reasoning his own sin, his own selfishness, gratifying his desires. I started laughing. Instead of getting upset, I just started laughing out loud in Target. And so now it's getting him more upset. And I'm being serious. I'm not kidding. I won't be your friend. But then he moved on. If you get me this, I'll let you get something. And I'm just laughing even harder. I know every parent in Target, you can, you know, it's that thing like they're, they're pretending to look at toys, but they're really sticking around to see how I handle him, you know? <laughs> they just, you know what I mean? Like they, they're really not looking at toys. This is like, how's this parent going to handle this, you know? And I'm just over here laughing because I'm seeing myself in him <laughs> when I was younger, right? I'm seeing myself in him when I was younger. I'm seeing myself in him when I wasn't a Christian. I'm seeing this verse lived out right before my eyes as I'm getting ready to preach on it. Which begs the question to me, right? What do you see when you look at someone else, right? What do you see when you look at someone else? Because to me, it should only be one of two things. You, when you look at someone else, you either see you before Christ or you see a current brother or sister in Christ. Because when we look at other people and we look at how they're acting or how they're behaving or how they look or how they're whatever, and if we want to judge, we want to look, well, that was you. That's what Paul's telling them. You were dead. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that fact. So when we look at people, what do you see? It should only be one of two things, without Christ or with Christ. And in that should dictate how we can walk in wisdom and how we interact with that person and how we deal with that person. If anything, if it's them before Christ, to let us have more compassion for that person, right? If it's someone who's in Christ, to let us figure out how we build each other up, right? Now, What amazes me here when we talk about United States, when we talk about walls and barriers and, and division and things like that, as I read through Ephesians, realizing that, that God has already united us. We're just not really living it out, right? God has already done the job. When we talk about marriage, when two are joined together, let no man tear apart. Well, I see this for the church too. God has already joined us together, right? Let's look at verse 11, okay? We look at verse 11. 14 through 17 here, we see, uh, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves to circumcisions. What I love about at least the Jews in this time is that Gentiles literally translates nations. There is no classification of race, for example, or classification of cultural background. All it was was all the nations that were not of God were joined together as one identity. They were all called Gentile. 
regardless of where you were from, you were just called a Gentile. You were either of God or not of God. We didn't classify all these different things, right? We didn't, for example, say you were either County or Collins. You were either UK or U of L. You were either hip-hop, grunge music, or rock and roll. <laughs> Hispanic, black or white. Chevy or Ford. <laughs> I thought of Chris Brown when I did that, by the way. <laughs> no, that was for you, Chris. All right. We classify so many people in so many different ways. Why do we not just see it as of God and not of God? And let that dictate how we interact with our community and the people around you, right? We have assigned so many people their classification. How are we united when we see them as their physical or cultural identity rather than their spiritual identity? They only saw it as two groups, Gentiles and Jews, apart from God versus of God. And when we look at verse 14, 14 through 17, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This literally translates the middle wall. The middle wall. There was us of God and them not of God, the Gentiles. And there was a middle wall that divided them, but God destroyed it. So make no mistake, God has already completed the work of uniting us. The wall is down. We can be united. We can go to them now because the wall is removed. The question is, are we crossing that threshold, right? Are we doing that, right? Think about what Charles Spurgeon said. I have observed that churches which do not care for the outlying population speedily suffer from disunion and strife. The wall is gone. We can care for the outlying population now. When we look at verse 17 and 18, right? He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Different backgrounds, different stories, but the same message and the same answer for all. The same message of Christ, the same answer in Christ, regardless of your different backgrounds and your different stories. So much so that when you read in verse 5, when it says Christ made us alive, I'm a little disappointed in the translations here because it leaves out a key word. When I read through the Greek studies, it literally says made us alive together. Together, he made us alive. When we follow the sins and gratify our own desires, that divides. I mean, look at my son, right? My son and gratifying his own desires said, I will not be your friend. I will not play with you. How divisive is that? Because when you follow yourself, you don't care or have concern others and that's ultimately what sin is right we follow our own desires but Christ made us alive together which means the focus is removed from us onto others right and I love this image in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 through 17 is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So if Christ has already made us alive together, if he's already broken down that wall, he's already united us, how do we as people and as a church embody the unity that God has already completed? And I think it begins with understanding the unity that God has made in yourself individually. 
It begins there, understanding how God has united me with him. When we read in Ephesians 2, 8, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The Greek word for, for grace is cherish, which means in favor. So let's think about this. God favored us being alive together rather than dead in our sins apart from each other. He favored it at the expense of death for his son. He chose us being together over his son. That's what God did. And if you remember verse 1 when Paul tells him, you were dead. Our community group this past Thursday did Ephesians 2. And uh, Jason Midkiff over here shared a good point. He, sh he shared that when you're dead, you can't do anything for yourself. If you're dead, you can do nothing for yourself. You can't even reach your hand up to God. So literally, God did it all. There was nothing Paul tells them. Remember that knowledge pushes people away. He takes them down off the high horse, and now he's telling them, there was nothing you did that joined yourself to God. God did it all. You simply had faith. We need to understand the image that God has made us in. And when I think about this idea of unity as Christians joined together, I read in Numbers earlier this week, Numbers 2-2, the Old Testament. So the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. Let me kind of give you, paint a picture here. We had 12 tribes of Israelites, and there was a tent of meeting in the middle, and in the north, south, east, and west. All these tribes were going to be joined together, and they were going to stand there holding the banners of their families. Each tribe, they were each different tribes, different families, but they were all joined together under the banner of God. They each had their own unique identity, right? Their unique circumstance, their unique family they came from. And when you read through the book and you realize that this is over 600,000 people standing there around the tent of meeting, all under the banner of God, I kind of shudder at the idea of the picture of what that unity looks like. Because to me, I realize that it's a little harder to do today because at least for the Israelites, they were of one faith, one language, one purpose, one race. They were all Jews. But when God broke down the wall and included the Gentiles, it's just a bit of a challenge there. Let's be honest, right? Now, I think of, um, when I think about people of all different backgrounds being united, I'm reminded, like, when I go to a U.K. game, and, like, you know, when, when there's, when Bam Adebayo, you know, slams down some dunk and the crowd erupts, like, we're all different. Like, I mentioned Chris Brown earlier, right? So if I, I see them wearing UK shirts and Jessica Brown's got like the pink and the purple hair and Chris has the gauges in his ears, and it's like, that is totally different from me. But I will cheer with them, right? I will cheer with them because I'm excited about UK basketball, right? But then I even think about yesterday uh, on the social media, a bunch of people blasting um, the TV station for showing Ashley Judd being, you know, UK fan, but she had went on a political rant not too long ago, and there's so all these UK fans so upset. How dare they show Ashley Judd after her political rant? So even UK basketball can't unite everybody, <laughs> right? <laughs> they can't. But under the banner of God, we can. 
And what we have to realize that despite all the different backgrounds and stories um, and despite the fact that God has already joined us together, we can't ignore the fact that there are real cultural barriers that divide us, which is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, <laughs> so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some." There are real cultural barriers that divide us, and we have to understand that. For example, one, uh, so I teach U.S. history at, the, at Shelby County High School, and I'll never forget this moment I had a few years ago. Um, we were in our unit on the civil rights movement. One of, my, one of my black students said something, and there was some discussion about it, and it got me really curious, and so they were talking about racism today. And I asked, I said, racism, there, there were three black students, two Hispanic students, the rest were white. And I just said, raise your hand if you think racism still exists today. Five hands went up. Can you guess which five? The three African-Americans, the two Hispanics. Those are the only hands that went up. And I had to realize something that day that, like, what do we do to empathize with people who are different than us? And that's got to say something. That's got to say something about the state that we're in and the racial tensions that are there that someone would maybe ignore or maybe think is not there. But if I've got those five students who clearly experience it and they're raising their hand, I've got to reconcile with that. And I've got to figure out how do I empathize and become like them so I can see that through and represent Christ in that way. This reminds me of uh, my, my time in Philly, right? Being the only white guy in a neighborhood in Philly doing some basketball ministry. And I did not grow up on rap music or hip-hop music or any of that, but that was big in this culture. And so I connected with the church there, and they had put together a Christian rap CD that I could pass out to the players I was playing basketball with and ministering to. And so I'm passing it out, and one of the guys goes, oh, is this you rapping on the CD? And I said, I'm just some white dude from Kentucky. He said, well, no one thought you could ball, but you can. Now, that was like back in my heyday when I was 50 pounds lighter and I had peripheral vision when I was playing basketball, but... But it made me realize, like, you know what? If it were up to me, I'd just be putting, like, worship music on the CD. Like, when I'm at work, my planning period, I just have worship music going. I'm not really into rap or hip-hop. But that next day, the guy came back to me and said, I, I always think that what church put together is corny. But I listened to that album from beginning to end, and it was hot. So then we got to talk about the gospel. And what do you know, when I'm in Philly, I end up going into a Philly barbershop, getting an actual Philly cut, you know, the whole traditional black barbershop, and I'm in the chair for two hours just getting a buzz cut, but it's taking two hours, and we're watching, like, Kevin Hart, if you know who that is, and, like, you know, the whole sharing stories, and I'm pretty sure, Mary, I never told you this, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure with my son in the, in the chair just watching, there was a drug deal that came into the barbershop and happened right before us. I never told you, I'm sorry. But we're talking about Jesus the whole time, right? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the gospel. Um, becoming like them, right? To erase those barriers and divides because none of those things is me. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. So that was all God doing his work. That's the only thing I can chalk it up to, right? The only thing I can chalk it up to. And all this is wrapped up in verse 10, right? So let's look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
John Piper says this best. If you remember the Dianora Greek word I used in verse 2 about thorough reasoning, <laughs> thoughtful reasoning we use for our sins does not compare to God's workmanship. Because here's what John Piper says. When Paul says that you are God's workmanship, don't think of your clunky seventh grade shop class project. Think of the Odyssey, Beowulf, the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, or the Fairy Queen. What great works of epic poetry. The Greek word Paul chose for this sentence is poema. And what he had in mind is a work of masterful creativity. You can already tell that there, this is where we get our English word poem from. Paul selected this word carefully. The only other time in Scripture he used it was in Romans 1.20, where it says, For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. The things that have been made is the Greek word poema. It's the same word he uses here when he's talking about making us. So picture this. When you're out at night and you see the stars in the skies and you see the galaxies and you see pictures of how vast our universe is and you see beautiful pictures of the mountains and lakes and all that, that is the word poema, that God created that. And you consider the amazing things and how awesome it is to look at that stuff and consider this. That's how God made you. It's the same word used. That is the amazing wonder that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you, right? Our intelligence, our thorough reason of our sin is no match for his work of art. And it's important for understanding that Christ made us alive together. Treasuring how God made us means we don't have to compare. Treasuring how God made us means we don't have to compare. We don't have to compare to each other. We don't have to compare to someone who's not of Christ. You are treasured by God. And because of that, we can stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about others. Right? And how do you bring unity into a divided world? When we see that the sense of our flesh divides us from others, the good works on a Christ banner unites us. Sin serves the self, but love sacrifices the self. When we see here, <laughs> creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, the same word peripateo is used again. Peripateo, I said it's that word in verse 2 when Paul said, follow the ways of the world, you walk around in sin. The same word is used in this verse, meaning walk around and do good works. I think there's sometimes a mentality that once we're saved that we just avoid the world. We isolate ourselves to be comfort. And so we don't walk around at all. But Paul's saying, walk around and do good works. When we understand who we are made in Christ, that we are treasured, valuable items in his creation, that sin is no longer controlling us, but that we can walk around and do good works. That is what brings unity because we all know when we serve, we're united, right? Regardless of people's background, regardless of people's stories, when you serve and you do good works, that's not what saves you, but it's the overflow of God saving you. I think of, um, I think of our love Shelbyville days and how we're doing that once a month now to restore our church back to the original purpose. And that's a springboard for us living this verse out to be as a church, but also individually. Um, I have a friend, Ronnie Garwood, who's over here. He, uh, the last love Shelbyville, he went and did a, a place to sleep and delivered beds. And he was back in a, in a neighborhood that he didn't even know existed in Shelbyville. And he started calling some people and called me. He said, I, I'm just broken for these people. I didn't even know this neighborhood was back here. 
And I've been back here, like, I just have a heart for these people. So he's been talking, like, what, what can we do, right? So let's go prayer walk in the neighborhood, which we need to do, right? When he has a heart for that, it's, it's, it's transitioning over. I think of our community group. We've been doing so much work with the Project Rebound and thinking about the, the people in my group who have made time to go over there and talk with those students over there, right? I think of my community group when I was talking about a family in my neighborhood that I, I felt convicted that we needed to have over for dinner, but I had put it off for like six months, and so then we put a timeline on it. So, Jeff, if you don't ask them by next Wednesday, we'll put some kind of punishment on you. And I had people like Sailor Elmer text me halfway through, hey, have you invited them over? Crap, no. <laughs> what you believe, man? We, we mustered that courage, and we did it by our deadline. <laughs> Thank God for the church to push us forward because I could just not walk around and claim the image of Christ, but sit in my home. But I was pushed to walk around and do good works because, as Charles Spurgeon said, I have observed that churches which do not care for the outlying population speedily suffer from disunion and strife. Because if we're not going to walk around doing good works, idle bodies turn to something. Idle bodies turn to something eventually. And if it's not doing good works in the community and it's not putting on the image of Christ, then it's going to turn to finding something to fill that idleness complaining, disgruntled. If you ask Peggy, she'll talk about churches that fight over the color of the carpet. Where's our focus? Right? So I want to end on this. I want to end on this. If we look at uh, verses 19 through 22, I think up here it's just going to start in verse 20, but I'll, oh, we got it. All right. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You are no longer dead in your sin, right? But on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Your understanding of your own identity can strengthen or weaken the unity found in God's church. When you understand that you were dead, but by grace you have been saved through faith, when you understand your identity and the new you, if you hold on to that identity, which means you now cast off focus on yourself and you now cast focus onto others, when you do that, you strengthen the unity of God's church. God's temple building, right? His building is not complete without your story in it. That to me is what this passage says, because we are being built up together to join his building together, to join his church together. So God's work is not complete without your story in it. Your story matters. As Gary was saying in the video, he's realized that Connie and myself do not have all the gifts. You have gifts we don't have. God works us together. Your story means you step out of your, outside of yourself now. right? You step outside of yourself now. And understand that your story can build the church and move towards reconciling with others. Unity in our community begins with unity in yourself. When you understand that and you hold on to that identity, now we can go outside the walls. The whole thing this church was built on, right? So let's ask ourselves, how do we see others? 
Let's remind ourselves, we're seeing for the spiritual identity, regardless of their background. They're of Christ, they're not of Christ. And let's understand that we're in this together as a church. Midland is in this together as a church. We're united with the same vision. Thanks be to God for what he has done in our life, and thanks be to God for what he will do in Shelbyville. And thanks be to God for what he will do through this church and other churches in Shelbyville. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much, God, for your grace that you favored us being together rather than being dead apart. And I thank you for the sacrifice of the cross that made that all possible, God. But I pray that we would take that identity, God, that you have rooted in us and that we would move it towards reaching the outside that we would move it towards walking around and, and being your light. Because the light hidden under a bucket or hidden is no light at all, God. So let us be the light for the world, a city on a hill. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.